If you would please stand with me as I read God's Word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 22. Hear what Holy, Christ, Holy Scripture says. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Would you please join me in praying for our time together? Heavenly Father, thank you for your church. Thank you that we do not have to go through this world on our own. You've granted us a fellowship, made us part of a body, adopted us into a family, that we may exhort each other to stay on the narrow path, the path that leads to life everlasting in Christ. Please bless our time together as a church under your word this morning. Amen. So I'm a parting shots guy. I have a, a bit of a compulsion to leave, in particular my kids, but with parting shots. Even if we've discussed something at length, if I'm dropping off my son at school, and I know he has a math exam, we've studied. But now he's halfway into the school, and I'm calling after him. Remember, two negatives make a positive. Solve everything in the brackets first. And I think maybe that Paul could relate. I think maybe he was also a parting shots guy. In this late part of the letter, before closing out the letter, Paul has some parting shots for the Thessalonian church. Paul wants to leave them with a couple of takeaways. And you may have noted already just from reading the passage that Paul has shifted his tone. He shifted from indicatives to imperatives. If you recall your grammatical school lessons, you get the implication of this. He shifted from encouraging the church by telling them what has been done and what will be done for them in the indicative to now telling the church what they are to do in the imperative. Specifically, how they are to encourage each other, what they, and by extension, we, are to do. And thanks to the solid foundation of indicatives that Paul has laid for us, rest assured that these imperatives are simple to abide by. And so here's how I see the passage breaking down. Really, there's two sections here, uh, verse 12 to 15 and then 16 to 22. And in the first part, Paul wants to paint a picture of the family dynamics within the church community, how we are to relate to each other. 
And then in the second part, 16 to 22, he goes through a quick and pithy list of family rules. Five straight-to-the-point rules. Three do's, two don'ts. We'll see that these two sections are not independent of each other. The one flows very naturally from the other. So we're going to spend really the bulk of our time in that first section because a solid understanding of that first part will make sure that the second part feels very logical. So let's start with that first section. What does it mean to live out our faith within the context of the church? What are the church family dynamics? In this first section, 12 to 15, Paul exhorts the Thessalonian congregation to comport themselves faithfully within the church body. And really, I mean, the first, maybe this is obvious, but the first thought that comes out of this passage is that the Christian should be part of the church body. And that may seem obvious since you're here, uh, but it's not uncommon, actually, to hear people claim, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus, but not of the church. Or I'm a Christian, but I don't need the church to worship God. And now, unfortunately, I just don't see how you can reconcile those two things. It just plain flies in the face of what the Bible teaches. If nothing else, just consider the simple fact that all these letters were sent to churches, not to individuals. The church is Christ's bride. Christ and his church are a packaged deal. No church, no Christ. They're one. You can be in Christ, in the church, or you can be out of the church. And in that case, you need to realize that you are also rejecting Christ. It really is that simple. It doesn't have to be here, at this specific church. I'm not saying this for the sake of MABC's attendance numbers. Wherever it is, you need to find yourself a local church where you can graft yourself into the vine. Let's not just take my opinion here for granted. Really, I want this point to be as clear as can be. So let's spend some time pulling together what we've learned from 1 Thessalonians to ensure that we wrestle this point to the ground. Why does the Christian need to be part of a church? Well, what we've learned so far is that when we become Christians, we declare that we submit to Christ. We no longer have final say over our own lives, never mind over the, li the lives of others. We no longer live by our will, but we live by God's will. And it is Christ's finished work on the cross that allows us to do so. And so we seek God's will in our decisions. We seek God's will so as to submit to it. And God's will is revealed to us in God's word, which is the Bible. The call that God has placed on us as Christians is to live differently. We're no longer to be guided by our own hearts, but guided by God's will for us, as revealed in the book. And God grants us help in doing this. He doesn't intend for us to just tough it out on our own. God does not tell us to just buck up, to muster up the strength to live by the law. No. He grants us help because he he, he knows the power of the flesh is strong. The desires of the hearts are persuasive. So remember, we saw that the word of God does not lay flat in the book. It is at work within us. We are indwelled by God's spirit to guide us. Sin starts to be less and less appealing through the spirit's transformative work 
of sanctification in our hearts. And so sin tastes more and more bitter, while righteousness tastes more and more sweet to us. But that doesn't mean that sin no longer has any sway on us. We are not completely immune to temptation. We are yet sinners navigating life in a fallen world, led by the prince of the power of the air. And it is filled with temptations to cheat and steal, and envy and covet and lust. And sometimes we'll neglect the book, and it will lie closed. And when that happens, we close off our hearts to the spirits, to the spirit, sorry. And we will allow sin to lure us in. Like telling the waitress, we'll just take a look at the dessert menu. I mean, she knows to go get the dessert forks ready, right? We will grant the tempter an audience. We will hear him out, thinking we can control him. Thinking we can open the door up just a crack to peek through. Not intending to throw the door wide open. Just to steal a glance. And before we even realize it, we've stepped into that other room. And when that happens, we need a different kind of help. We need someone to guide us back, to remind us that we don't belong in the lurid world of those who submit to the enemy. We belong on the other side. We need someone to guide us back, to open our Bibles back up, and to encourage us to open our hearts back up to the Spirit. Someone to teach and rebuke and pray for us, to pray over us, to walk with us, and to point out all the pitfalls, the dangers, the snares that are all around us. And most importantly, to point us back to Christ. That's why we need to be part of a church, because we're brothers in arms, no man left behind. So don't go it alone. We all need each other. We need encouragement, but not from the sidelines. Not like a cheerleading squad. We all need to jump in and play an active part. I mean, picture those cheerleaders putting down the pom-poms and putting on the shoulder pads and the helmets and rushing the field to block and tackle. Maybe even to give a brotherly shove if you're a Philadelphia Eagles fan. As a church, we are all in. If you haven't already, it really is time to get off the sidelines. Because... When one of us is under attack, we need to lock arms and clear a path forward. The local church is important. And so is how a local church conducts its affairs. And this is what the next verse flushes out. A healthy church is marked by certain internal dynamics. And these dynamics that Paul describes are between different groups within the church congregation. So, what makes up a church congregation. If we've established the need to be part of a church congregation, then what should that look like? Churches come in all shapes and sizes, from a group of believers huddled in a basement so as not to be found out by an authoritarian government, to a megachurch with tens of thousands filing into an amphitheater the size of a stadium. What exactly is a church? Well, the important part is to be part of a congregation, a group of believers who know you and hold you accountable as you all submit your lives to Christ 
who is the head of that church. And you do so by worshiping together and praying corporately, studying the word of God together, being discipled, contending for the gospel in fellowship with each other. A church gathering is like nothing else, no other gathering. 200 people gathered in any other context is radically different from what is happening here this morning. Because something extraordinary happens as we gather to proclaim the covenant of, in Christ's blood that binds us together and to God as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. We gather to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Our bond is stronger than a family bloodline. It is not our blood that binds us, but Christ's blood. Now, our, our passage in verse 12 and 13 in particular implies that within the church, some are over the congregation and admonish the congregation, even as they labor among the congregation. In other words, the passage states the need for church leadership of some sort. Why would we need church leadership? I guess you can consider the alternative, being part of a church with no leadership. It might look a little bit like, do you remember in 2011, some of you are too young, but it's 12 years ago already, it seems like yesterday, Occupy Wall Street, they were protesting the concentration of wealth within the top 1% of the population. Their rallying cry was, we are the 99%. This protest organization had no leadership. They decided, by design, to be leaderless. And for 59 days, this huge crowd took over the famous New York City street to demonstrate against economic inequality. 59 days seems like a long time, but it then dissolved into a mishmash of antisocial demands, eventually got co-opted by mainstream political parties, corporate marketing. The whole thing fizzled out without accomplishing anything. Lack of leadership in any organization will lead to the rapid dissolution of that organization, like a glass of water without the glass. It's just a puddle. We don't need a model that will keep us going 59 days. We're assigned a much grander mission. Some sort of leadership is required to keep the church on that mission because it's the most important mission that anyone has ever been called to be part of. Now, just like any household, there are healthy and unhealthy dynamics. And the church is no ex exception. Paul outlines what healthy household dynamics look like. He defines how we are to relate to each other within the household of God. And there's three different groups here that he goes through. The first dynamic, in verse 12 and 13, is where Paul defines that relationship between the congregation and that leadership we were just talking about. But then in verse 14, he, def he uh, expands that out and speaks about the relationship we should have with certain specific groups within the church family. And then finally in verse 15, he expands it even further 
to define the dynamic between all members of the church family. So first thing Paul provides here is actually, it's a command. It is the command to the church body to submit to the authority of that church leadership we were just talking about. You see that, I hope, in verse 12. It's an imperative. Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And then verse 13, esteem them very highly in love. What, what about church leadership is it that is deserving of esteem? Paul says it's their work, their labor. The church needs pastors and elders, pastors and elders who labor for the church. They put in the work. They are over us in Christ. They govern us in the Lord, and they admonish us. They warn us and even correct us when we need to be corrected. That's what verse 12 says. That is why we need the church and why the church needs to be structured with leadership under the ultimate headship of Christ. We need to be told to keep our eyes open, Terry, and on the road. He's, his eyes are open right now. It's a throwback to last week, so I hope you know that. As Matt put it a few weeks ago, we must be able to keep our eyes on the road because when we close our hearts to the Holy Spirit, we no longer hear the lane assist. And so we need someone to grab that steering wheel for us. As Paul puts it, we need someone to who labors for you, who is over you, in a position to admonish you. And note that what we need in our church structure then is someone to reconnect us to Christ when that connection is lost. Not to play the role of an intermediary for Christ. It's an important point, for no, if for no other reason, that we just commemorated Reformation Day on Tuesday. We need shepherds, teachers, pastors, elders to point us to Christ. Not to stand in the way, not to control the access to Christ. Not to manage our access to the Bible. I hope that is clear. What we do not need is a priest to insert himself between us and Christ, or a pope to insert himself between us and the Bible. We need pastors and elders to ensure we foster our own connection with Christ through the Holy Spirit and to the Word of God in the Bible. And how should we relate to these pastors and elders? What is the response of the believer to pastors? Scripture commands us to esteem them very highly in love. Acknowledge our pastor's authority and respect that authority in love. I'm not going to let this opportunity go by. I hope you know and understand and appreciate the high calling on our pastors, on Utah, on Terry, on Matt. They serve this body sacrificially. There's no doubt that they could be out there working a nine-to-five, making more dough, having less demands on them. They would get snapped up by the secular workforce in the blink of an eye. Now, cover your ears, guys. I'm not trying to give you any ideas. But they get called out at all hours of the day or night. They put in countless hours for the church, ministering to all of us at all stages of life, in all manner of situations. They labor as verse 12 puts it. They work hard, and they relish it, not because they want to make much of themselves, 
Given the nature of the situations that they shepherd us through, most of what they do is highly personal, private, confidential. They labor because they love the Lord and they love you. They would have it no other way. But keep in mind, from our perspective, that throughout this country, pastors are burning out. Walking away and leaving pulpits empty, or worse, leaving pulpits to be filled by those who would rather share their own views than those of the Bible, who would rather make a big deal of themselves than make a big deal of Christ. So don't let our pastors labor in vain. Don't let them burn out. Don't take their labor for granted. Love your pastors. Esteem them in love. And if you can do that in tangible ways, please. And when a pastor comes alongside you, when they see an area that you may need warning about or you may need correcting in, when they admonish you, your flesh is going to fight back. But don't harden your hearts to them. You know, here at Maple Avenue Baptist Church, we love to say that we're a hospital for sinners and not a museum for saints. I just want us to make sure we understand that doesn't mean that we're doctors and nurses prescribing things for other people. If we really mean this when we say it, we need to recognize we are the patients. And when we're being prescribed a treatment, this is when it matters most. We need to follow our prescription. We need to hear our pastors out with an open mind and a soft heart and submit to their wisdom because it's not theirs. It's from God. He is the source of their wisdom and of their authority. We're called to submit to our pastors as they submit to Christ. It's good. I know that this is particularly difficult, maybe even painful for some. Some of you may have difficulty seeing this as good. Anyone who's experienced abuse from pastors would have a hard time accepting the position of vulnerability that we're called to place ourselves in towards our pastors. It is a particular evil when harm is committed by someone charged with protecting those they abuse. And we know that it happens. Some of you right here may have sat under Bruce Brooksy Carvey at the meeting house. The revelation of his abuse to those he was trusted to shepherd and even counsel continues to be shocking. We may not have been theologically aligned, but he had a big voice in the local Christian community. And his actions were so damaging to the faith of so many. It can take a long time to find a new church family that you can embrace after that level of betrayal. Likewise, the Ravi Zacharias scandal hit really close to home. Both these men served, I mean, not merely cautionary tales, stark warnings against allowing any single personality to become more important than the church or the ministry that they claim to lead. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, 
but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The lead pastor himself should never be beyond the admonition from other pastors and elders and the congregation. And the role of contending for the health of the flock should never be relegated to one single man. That is the greatest downside risk I can see to any megachurch. So I love local churches like Maple Avenue Baptist Church with a plurality of elders who not only work with our pastors but labor alongside them for the flock, praying for each and every member of the congregation by name. The church is called to be a true family where it is not only up to the pastors and elders to be looking out for the flock, but everyone is. Each of us, we're all called to be looking out for one another. That is the charge in our text. You see, this gathering is like no other gathering. We do not come to be inspired for the week. This family meeting is all hands on deck. When you skip church, it's not only you who misses out. The whole family does. There are family dynamics at play, and note here that they're not only about how we relate to our leadership, but also how we relate to each other. Beyond the elders, Paul wants the entire congregation to know we all have a role to play in the health of the family. We are called a church body because every member is important, useful, needed, valuable. From the frontal lobe to whatever the earlobe does, we're all here with a role to play. So how does Paul present the dynamic between the members of the family of believers? How should we relate to each other? That's verse 13, starting the second half of verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. Peace is good. And we're all tasked with fostering peace. Fostering peace does not mean you ignore conflict. It doesn't mean you're silent about injustice. It doesn't mean you should avoid rocking the boat. We are all actively to contend for peace, to be not merely peacekeepers, but peacemakers. And part of the charge is making, of making peace is to keep the wolves at bay. Paul warned in Acts 20, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Peace for the flock may require casting out wolves. But the sheep, the followers of Christ, are citizens of heaven. That is our citizenship. In this place, it doesn't matter what our passport says. We're all at peace. As long as you claim Christ, your passport can describe you as man or woman, as visible minority or not, as indigenous or not, as Russian, Ukrainian, Israeli, Palestinian, Iranian, American, Canadian. We are all at peace because we pledge our allegiance to the Prince of Peace. This peace is granted to us by Jesus. We receive peace from Jesus. So how do we steward this peace that we receive among ourselves? That's the question. Verse 14 to 15, Paul gives directions to the church family on how to get along with each other to promote peace within the family of God. And so to do this, he mentions three specific groups within the church family. The idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. Do you see those in verse 14? 
First, let's make sure we understand these categories. What does it mean to be idle? Well, if your car idles, it doesn't go anywhere. It's not engaged. It's not in gear. It may rumble and grumble, but it's not taking you anywhere. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. In the church, the idle are not going about doing the work they're called to do. So they have spare time. And with that spare time, they're not particularly productive. Your Bible may have a note on this translation that offers up some alternatives, such as unruly or disorderly. They stir up controversy unnecessarily. It is advisable to keep busy going about doing the work that we're called to do, like serving, loving others, showing hospitality. What about the faint-hearted? The faint-hearted meaning they are easily disheartened. They have a weak constitution when it comes to their faith. They easily despair. Like big trees with short roots, they're easily toppled over by the wind. The faint-hearted are not rooted enough in the hope of the gospel. So study, meditate on, teach the word. Lead your family in devotion, nurture the roots of your faith, so you may stand firm in the shifting and sometimes raging winds of this world. What about the weak? Well, here meaning those who are spiritually weak. They do not know the things they ought to know. They do not work out their faith. A good workout needs resistance, heavy weights, and endurance. Their faith has not been tested by the trials of this world. So when their circumstances become heavier, they gasp for air and risk collapsing under the weight. Prepare yourselves for the testing of your faith. The Bible is clear. This test is coming to determine the genuineness of your faith. Now, I don't want you to understand these as three defined groups within the church. Over here, the faint-hearted, the weak over here. and No, that's not how it works. At any given time, in any given church, there are brothers and sisters who are in the throes of one of these struggles. We all go through seasons of struggle, and we all benefit from being part of a church where the family rallies behind you to spur you on out of one of these funks. So you can be assured when you go through a season where a pastor, an elder, or a church member admonishes you that there's no condemnation. God's grace is not only about forgiveness. God's grace empowers us also. It drives us forward in our sanctification. In our submission to Christ, we do not relinquish our faith or our salvation. Quite the opposite. We not only remain a full-fledged brother or sister in Christ, but we grow in our holiness as our faith is tested and refined. For those of you who were here a few years back, you got to witness a dear brother to us stand up here and confess in front of the whole congregation that he had been abusing alcohol. This is not an easy thing to do. I recall Gord at the, same, at the time saying, boy, that takes guts. Amen, Gord. But when I asked this brother about it, he told me he knew he was sinning. And he also knew that God had established the church to care for him 
amidst this particular cycle of sin that he was stuck in. It was absolutely scary. But he clung to God's faithfulness and the truth of his word. And this brought about a right fear of God, which convinced him that he could no longer live this life of deception. The elders and our senior pastor at the time surrounded him, supported him, encouraged him. They came around him. They asked him to step back from certain areas. He met with elders. He studied scripture. He was counseled. He was held to account. But he was never condemned. He was not relegated. He was not shamed. He was not cast out. His faith did not wither. He did not fall away from the faith. He was restored. You neither. You won't be relegated to second class. You are a beloved member of the church family. You are safe and known and loved and forgiven and saved. So how does the family come around the struggling The interesting part is that the church family is given a different set of directions for each group. They're not to treat everyone the same. I hope you see that also in verse 14. We are to admonish, encourage, help, and be patient. It's important to remember that this is not specifically charged at this point to pastors, but to the whole church family, who are to admonish the idle, the unruly, exhort them to change their behavior. They need to be told to course correct. Encourage those who are prone to despair. Shore up their strength in their faith. Help the weak. Provide them with the knowledge, the theology that they require. Help them understand and live out the commands of the scriptures. And as a capstone on all of these, be patient with them all. As a church family, we are expected to know each other. To be honest about our spiritual health. Doesn't mean you go around with a name tag that says, Hello, my name is Idol. Nice to meet you, I'm weak. But you should have real, genuine, brotherly and sisterly relationships within the church family who know you and how you are truly doing. The church is exhorted to stop bad or unhelpful comportment, encourage good and helpful behavior, come alongside those who need help, and to do it with patience. This means we're called to be long-suffering, to expect misunderstanding and even sin, to deal with it decisively, but without harshness, without exasperation. And in verse 15, we read, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another. As we live out our faith, we will be wronged. It happens in any family. If it was not going to happen within the church family, we would not need any of these reminders from Paul. As we are wronged, we are to avoid repaying evil with evil. We need to be reminded as a church family that it's not our responsibility to administer punishment, but rather to promote righteousness and selflessness and grace and peace. We're all as one family contending 
for one faith. Unity comes from these good family dynamics. And just note that Paul adds, and to everyone, meaning those outside the church, our witness to the community matters. We should be looking to grow our family, not to repulse outsiders. So Paul extends this command to our relationship with the community also. But now I don't want you to miss what this means for you. It means that in this place you can be known and no matter what, you are loved. We won't do this perfectly, but this is our mission. No one here is going to stand by and let you fall away. No one here will just let you stray without contending for your salvation. This is a place for all who submit to Christ. The pastors and elders and your brothers and sisters in this place expect you to go through trials, to make mistakes, to slip up and even fall. And when this happens, there is a group of men who are praying for you. There are men and women who are ready to come around you, to set aside their time for you, to patch you up, sure you up, lift you up, and walk through whatever this world has to throw at you arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder. You never have to go about this alone. Never think that you can do this without the local church. A Christian without a church is a sheep without a flock. There's a reason Christ leaves the 99 to save the one. You stand no chance on your own, but together with Christ as our shepherd, and this team of pastors are as our under-shepherds. Well, I can't put it any better than Jesus does in John 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You see, you're not the one holding on to Jesus. He has you in his hand. It is in Christ's hand because our salvation does not come from anything we have done. We do not do anything to deserve to be saved. Rather, it is our behavior that condemns us. It is our sinful desires and impulses that cause us to reject God. But God isn't jilted. Despite our rejection, he is long-suffering. His justice will be served. That day is coming. We saw that. But God is delaying that day out of patience so that all may know that we do not need to pay the price for our misbehavior. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for Christ has suffered the punishment for us. And his righteousness is ours because he has granted it to us. He wasn't tricked into this. This isn't the result of some cosmic clerical error. Nor is it a, as a result of our righteousness. We all fall short of the glory of God. But salvation belongs to the Lord. As Charles Spurgeon said, Oh, if God were to put my salvation in my hands, I should be lost in ten minutes. But my salvation is not there. It is in Christ's hands. So Maple Avenue Baptist Church, rest in this assurance of salvation and rejoice. 
That is how we transition into the second part of the passage. It flows very nicely from the first section. There are five rules that Paul gives us to live out our faith. You see here, you do not live by these rules in order to be saved. But you have been saved, and so you cherish these five rules. You want to abide in them. And in your sanctification, these rules are sweet to you. And the Holy Spirit guides you, leads you in them. And the church as a body works together to ensure these rules are promoted. Based on the hope that Paul has outlined, and we've been going through in the past few weeks, and based on this marvelous church family, this body that you are part of, then you can easily follow these five rules. They are captured in verse 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. There are three do's, two don'ts. This burden is light. The yoke of the church is easy. What are they? Well, let's start with the first three, the three do's. Joy, prayer, thankfulness. Rule one, rejoice always. Rule two, pray without ceasing. Rule three, give thanks in all circumstances. When the family of believers behaves in the way God has in mind for us, within the context of the local church, then all these directions are carried out in joy. Because it is the greatest calling on anyone to be called to carry out kingdom work, to be used to advance God's purposes. And this is not done on our own strength. It does not deplete us. No, see verse 17. We point each other towards God. We grow in our faith and our increased reliance on the Spirit through prayer. Prayer is closeness to God. And it produces, verse 18, thankfulness. Every circumstance is an opportunity to give thanks as every circumstance increases our faith and our likeness of Christ as we die ever more to ourselves and live ever more for Christ. And there are two final commands, two pitfalls to avoid, two don'ts. Rule four, don't quench the spirit. Rule five, don't despise prophecies. You want to allow the process of sanctification to take a hold of your life. And the only thing that can stop this is you. You can suppress it by overriding it with your own sinful desires. You can pursue your own selfish ambition, decide to discard the local church and go it alone. So these two last commands prevent that from occurring. Verse 19, first pitfall to avoid, suppressing the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. He is at work in you, guiding you, convicting you. Do not drown him out with the noise of this world, which will try to convince you to listen to your own dreams, your own selfish ambitions. The world will whisper in your ear, did the Spirit really say? Do not listen to the world's temptations. These are the words of the snake. Verse 20 is the second pitfall, dismissing prophecy. Do not despise prophecies. Now, God works in supernatural ways, including prophecies. Do not reject or dismiss or despise the ways 
God is actively involved in your life. We'll see. Yes, test it. The Spirit and the Scriptures will guide you. Nothing He does will ever contradict what He has revealed in the Scriptures. But do not be callous or jaded or cynical or ashamed to see and praise God for His active involvement in our lives. The prophecies in Scripture and those aligned with Scripture are trustworthy. They are the basis for the promises of God. They declare the darkness that awaits anyone who forges their own path apart from God. They warn of the lifestyle that leads to death. The world will whisper, you shall not surely die. Do not listen to the world's lies. These are the lies of the snake. As Paul wraps up this section and gets ready to conclude this letter, he does not tell the Thessalonians to blindly trust, to obey without questioning, to close their eyes and shut down their minds. No, he exhorts them to be thoughtful and diligent about the way they live out their faith. Verse 21, 22, the believer should not accept anything blindly, but must test everything against the Spirit and the Scriptures. They are the church of Christ's guardrails. Test everything. Hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Praise God for adopting us into the body of Christ. Thank God for the local church. Families of Christians throughout the world who gather in numbers large and small, who know and love each other and contend shoulder to shoulder in fellowship for the advancement of the gospel all over the world. To quote the great Tim Keller, to be loved but not known, superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be known and loved, that transforms you. You are here at a family reunion. This is where you belong. You can be fully known here, and you will always be loved here. We love you, and Christ loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Maple Avenue Baptist Church. Thank you for Pastor Utah, Pastor Terry, for Matt, for their families, all the staff and elders and deacons and ministry leaders and everyone who serves you here and everyone who gathers here in your name. Please bless and keep this body. Amen.